In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I just think about the splendors of the world and multiply by two. That was the Reverend John Boughton speaking about heaven in Marilyn Robinson's novel, Gilead. Sandra Wyatt Magnus, Sandy, died just after midnight Monday morning, April 30th, 2018 A.D. She was born March 18, 1942, about three months after Pearl Harbor. When her parents had talked about adding to their family, they would have known that war was probably coming, and they didn't let it stop them. In war, even world war, life goes on. Sandy lived for 76 years and six weeks. According to scripture, the years of our life are three score and 10, which means 70 years even. Back then, that was considered a full glass. Now, most people would consider it a stingy pour. At the age of 63, I'm beginning to appreciate their point. So we tap the glass and look up and say to the server, if it's, asking not too, if it's not asking too much, could you top me off? And usually now the server answers yes and fills the glass up to the brim until it's running over. Sometimes the little cork or detritus from the bottom of the bottle mixed in that doesn't taste quite so good. And asking for a top-off, that gives us something to consider, but even with the cork and detritus, most of us would gladly choose the extra years. Thomas Aquinas would say that this choice is natural. In a section titled, Human Life is a Journey to God, Aquinas wrote that just as we naturally desire the good things we have in life to last, we also wish life itself to last. We shrink from death, is how he put it. That's our instinct. If three score years and ten is good, four score years is better, and better yet would be that many years plus five or ten. All through life, that instinct guides us through life reliably, like the needle on a compass pointing towards magnetic north. It is a compliment to God, giving life its due. Sandy's compass was working just fine when we last talked, which was six days before she died. Realistically, she faced the fact that for her, for her, for her life, the end was near, but she didn't mind saying that she'd prefer to live a little longer if she could. She was of sound mind, in other words. The fact that we were having this conversation is a little story in its own right that I hope that you won't mind me telling you. I've been a priest since I was 28 years old. At that young age, I was sent out to Trinity Church Van Buren as the vicar. As I was unpacking my books in my new office, a member stopped by to introduce herself. As we were chatting, she mentioned that she was on her way to see her sister in the hospital, and I said, I'll go see her. What's her name? I assumed that this was what my visitor wanted and expected me to do, and I was trained, ordained, and eager to do it. 
but my assumption was wrong. In the typical unvarnished Ozark Mountain way, she shook me off. Don't do that. She's not all that sick, but if she sees you, she'll think, she, she'll think they sent the priest. It must be bad, and it'll stir her up. <laughs> I went and saw her anyway. We had a nice short visit, and I said a prayer and went home. And the patient and her sister both decided that they were glad I'd come. The sister told someone I was the first priest she'd known who knew his way around a sick room. It turned out that was just beginner's luck. Many times since then I've stumbled in a sick room, but I'll still go and give it my best shot, including sometimes when I'm not exactly wanted. The point is, I can be stubborn when I have to, and sometimes as a priest I do. It was that way with Sandy. She was dying and she knew it, and she told a friend that she would like to see the dean. I got word and I called to see when I could come. We set a day and time. Before the time came, her friend called to say that Sandy was not feeling up to visitors that day. That was also normal. She was sick. When we're queasy, no one wants to see a priest, me included. <laughs> I said to call when she was feeling better. After a day or two, when no one called, my priestly stubbornness kicked in, and I called Sandy to reschedule. When I got her on the phone, she was ambivalent. Yes, she wanted me to come, and no, she didn't. I pushed for yes, and we got it on the schedule. The day came, and messages from friends started coming in that she wasn't up to visitors. This time, I came on and rang the doorbell, and they let me in. I persisted because I knew that she had said that she wished the dean would come, and it felt important that I respect that wish at some point, even if it were covered by ambivalence. There had to be a reason why she'd said it. And so I went. And then I stayed, longer than would usually be right when talking to a person in a sick room. We talked about her life, starting from her birth in wartime, right up to then that we were talking. And that's when she said that, yes, she was sick and struggling with cancer, but struggle or no struggle, life is worthwhile, and she would prefer that it continue. Pastoral ministry is nine parts listening to one part talk. Christians have the Holy Spirit, so the wisdom that they need is almost always wisdom that they already have deep inside. And if we listen and are patient, they will find and voice it all by themselves. Occasionally, a priestly word or two may figure in the Holy Spirit's recipe. In my visit with Sandy, I think that word or two was helpful. It was about something in the Bible. It was when, it was when she said that if it were up to her, she would prefer to live a little longer if she could. She didn't feel finished with her life. That reminded me of Paul in the second letter to the Corinthians. Thinking about life and death, he put it this way, speaking for Sandy and everyone else of sound mind and failing body. We don't want to be unclothed, but further clothed, he said. That's what I remembered. Unclothed would mean stripped of our existence. 
A compass needle doesn't want that. Stubbornly, it points to more of life, not less. If Paul were there instead of me, he would have said to Sandy, of course you feel your life isn't finished. We all feel that way, and it's good we do. Number one, because God gave it to us. And number two, because in fact it isn't finished. At that point, St. Paul might have quoted a little T.S. Eliot. In my beginning is my end, and in my end is my beginning. From the beginning, layer upon layer, all through life, we add new clothes. On March 18, 1942, Sandy put on birth that rude awakening. Infancy was next, the life of being held and fed and burped and changed and rocked to sleep, oblivious to the news from Europe and the Pacific on which her future life depended. After the war, she was further clothed in southern girlhood, tomboy style, like Scout and To Kill a Mockingbird, she told me. After that, she was layered on with the adolescent life of Elvis Presley's Memphis. She put on music wearing red and black on Friday nights with the East High School marching band. Then she clothed herself in college life, sorority style, at Memphis State. And so on it went for decade after decade through the long journey of her life towards God. For through the waters of baptism, she had also put on Christ, that garment of protection, solace, and direction. Through training and experience, she would add on skills and know-how of cytotechnology, whatever that is, then real estate, then property oversight and management. And she was further clothed with the prayers and promises of marriage and faithful life in marriage with Byron. And right here, she clothed herself with parish life, including outwardly the purple smock of service with the All Saints Guild, and inwardly its funeral ministry of warmth and helpful hospitality. Even when she'd shed a set of clothes, exchanging one outfit for another, health care for real estate, single life for marriage, what came before remained a part of who she was becoming. It's the same with butterflies. From her tomboy days forward, Sandy always found caterpillars fascinating who were clothed within cocoons before emerging further clothed as butterflies. As they fly off, they carry what they were before with them, but now transfigured. Paul writes, For in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. I reminded Sandy on her deathbed of our faith that in her death she would not be stripped of the life she'd had. Rather, she would put on more. About life, Christian faith is that stubborn. It concedes nothing to death. In fact, the opposite. Rather than cowering in fear in the face of death, our faith is defiant. To death it says, you won't take my life, you'll give it back to me double. As Boughton put it, just think about the splendors of the world and multiply by two. Does that seem far-fetched? Some would say so. I don't know that it should seem far-fetched. 
But even if it does, far-fetched is nothing but a judgment based on previous experience. The natural caterpillar metamorphosis would seem far-fetched if we hadn't seen it. Imagine if butterflies had brains like ours, their surprise delight upon emergence. Check out these wings, one says to another. Beyond their highest hopes, the splendors of their caterpillar world had multiplied by two. Life after death was not far-fetched to Paul, John, and the other first followers of Jesus because in him they'd seen it. It is a stubborn fact of history that they lost their fear. That fact is plain on the pages of the Bible, and it is as remarkable in its own way as what happens inside cocoons, and it speaks firmly for the truth of life eternal. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live.